Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, the podcast where we hear from innovators, pioneers, and thought leaders in the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a senior editor at Forbes covering all things crypto. If you love Unchained, please give the show a positive rating or review on iTunes. A huge percentage of people who listen to the show found it simply by searching in their podcast app, and good ratings help bring it to the top of search results. Also, spread the word on Facebook, Twitter, or in your secret Slack and Telegram channels. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Laura Shin. This week's episode is brought to you by OnRamp. Your branding and website are the first things your users will see, and in the current wild west of ICOs and blockchain startups, you need to stand up from the pack. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that will help amplify your brand with the perfect website, logo, collateral, or custom design project. Get big results in no time by visiting thinkonramp.com. Today's guest is Naval Ravikant, co-founder and chairman of AngelList and partner at what might be the longest-running crypto hedge fund, Metastable. Welcome, Naval. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I guess you're all out of pioneers and influencers, so here I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I literally was telling my Lyft driver, I was like, this is the most important interview I'm, I'm going to do. Um, Today. <laughs> no, 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 for this podcast. Please don't be self-deprecating. Everybody knows that you, I mean, everybody's following you on Twitter. Everybody's retweeting your tweets. Um, so let's chat about what you're up to. Uh, last time you emailed me, it was to say you were no longer CEO of Angelus and you hadn't been for a while. But in July, I interviewed you and I think you said you were. Um, oh, the title, least. I mean, I, I'm not big big on titles. I've been, uh, I started Angelus seven years ago. I've been running it in some form or another um, for those seven years. Today, I'm executive chairman. I have a couple of good uh, CEOs for the different units because Angelus has a bunch of different business units. Uh, running it. So uh, I'm still day-to-day here at the office. I still kind of do my thing. I just don't have that many direct reports anymore, which is a relief to me after seven years. That's all that, I, that so is. So what percentage of your time do you spend here versus with Metastable? Uh, physically, I'm at Angelus the whole time. Metastable doesn't even have an office. Okay. Um, so, but I mean, just your your time. What you're doing. Uh, I think mental bandwidth. Uh, it, it varies. Some weeks is 50-50. Some weeks is 70-30 Angelist. Uh, you know, on Metastable, honestly, my partner, Lucas Ryan and Josh Simon do a lot of the heavy lifting. I'm just the face. So I do a lot of the talking. Okay. Okay. So you're not, it's not like you've made some wholesale shift over to crypto. I would say my mind share is heavily crypto. So even on Angelus, I spent most of this year building CoinList, uh, which is our legal regulated web lit marketplace for ICOs that we started with Protocol Labs. And we spun that out as a separate entity. But I was basically playing the founder role on that. Um, so I helped assemble the company, raise, uh, you know, raise in some money, um, just kind of create the whole infrastructure for it, get some of the early customers, and then recruited a team for it, a really capable team, uh, and then handed it off. Okay. And I know that CoinList also recently uh, 
launched a sister company, Republic Crypto? The Republic's been around for a while. So Republic is uh, an AngelList uh, crowdfunding spin-out. So basically, we had a bunch of AngelList alumni who left a few years ago, and they started a crowdfunding company around Title III of the Jobs Act. And that was Republic. And uh, recently, as you've seen with a lot of ICOs, they want to be legal. They want to be compliant with securities laws. Uh, and so they are doing that uh, using CoinList, but that only allows them to sell to accredited investors. They also want to be able to bring along the rest of the community because community building is critical with uh, with the coins and tokens. Uh, and so Republic is a crowdfunding site that is legal. And so Republic Crypto is this crypto arm that helps these ICOs also reach sort of more ordinary users, but with regulations and controls around how much they can invest and the levels of disclosure and sophistication that, that's required. So yeah, so the Angelus family has gotten pretty big now. We have CoinList, we have Republic, we have Product Hunt, we have Angelus Talent, and of course we have Angelus Fundraising. So at this point, it looks more like an alphabet, you know, like a group, like a group of companies rather than a single company. And so I'm exec chairman of that group. Okay. And for Republic, um, would the ICOs on that platform be limited to like 1 million or some small amount? Um, I... I think the base case, the easiest case is 1 million, which is what's in there by law, but Republic could also do things like Reggae Plus offerings and other offerings that can open it up to more investors. It's it's just that the um, disclosure, the diligence, the preparation, all that work goes up. So it just depends on how much you're trying to raise, what the specific circumstances of your company are. Uh, unfortunately, when it comes to securities law, nothing is simple. <laughs> I can't summarize it on a podcast, but if you're interested, uh, if any listener is interested, they should reach out to the Republic team or to the CoinList team. Okay. So I want to establish everything that you're doing across crypto. I kind of did a little bit of digging. Mm-hmm. You're on the board of the Zcash Foundation. Mm-hmm. You yeah. backed a crypto mm-hmm. index fund, the Holds 10, which I wrote about. I will put that in the right. show notes. Bitwise Hold 10, yeah. What's, oh yeah, Bitwise. Yeah, is the name of the company. Hold Ten is the name of their fund. Uh, I've been pushing them to call it the Hodel Ten. <laughs> it's been a big debate. Too. I love Hodel. I, I said that when I interviewed them. Of I course, was like, why yeah. don't you do that? But they, I, I guess they wanted to be conservative. I think they want to go very mainstream, right? The whole point of an index fund is making a, a low cost vehicle available to lots of people. So right. uh, to the average Joe who may not know what Hodel is, they might think it's a hold misspelling. <laughs> that is true, which it is. Which it is which exactly. Is, which is why we love yeah. it. Um, so obviously you're also doing CoinList, Republic Crypto, um, and you've also invested in Filecoin, Blockstack, uh, Ryan and Mini were actually on the podcast a few episodes back for listeners who want to learn about them. You invest in Basecoin, which is attempting to do a stable coin. Yeah. Did you, you invested in Numerai? A uh, tiny bit in Numerai way back when, LedgerX, tiny bit way back when, ChiaCoin, Kraken, Corbit. Um, there's about three more cooking right now that haven't been announced um, but I actually don't do a whole lot of, in, in the private side of crypto. Uh, most of my crypto investing, uh, certainly all the public coins, you know, the Bitcoins, the Ethereums, and those things all go through Metastable. Um, and even the private investments, a lot of them go through Metastable. I only do it personally on top of Metastable um, if I want to put in more, basically. So is there any like particular philosophy or thesis that you're following as you make these choices about what to get involved in? Yeah, at least at the moment, I definitely have a distinct point of view, uh, which is that uh, for the most part, I'm looking at the money and money-like tokens, uh, the things that can become a store of value, unit of account, uh, medium of exchange, uh, or be uh, power or power financial contracts. Uh, and, I, and I make that choice because I think those are the most near-term applications that are close to being fulfilled. And by close, I mean five to ten years. <laughs> I don't mean two years. 
Uh, and uh, those are also the applications uh, that are the largest markets, frankly. If you get to redefine what money is, that is a much larger generational shift of value um, than building an app- application. Uh, the exceptions I make, I, I do make an exception to certain apps that I think can be really large, like Filecoin is an example where file storage is a, is a big business. By the way, none of this is investment advice. You should not invest in any of this. <laughs> like my, my advice to people would be if they want to invest in this uh, asset class, it's crazy risky. Just buy a tiny amount in an index fund and be done with it. That's the best thing you can do. Um, obviously, uh, th- this, this asset class makes venture look like safe bonds and you know value equities. So um, anyway, so, so going back to that, uh, I invest in the money and money-like tokens because they can be large or things that I think can be platforms. That's why I'm in Blockstack. That's why I'm in Filecoin, because I think they can be large platforms. Um, and I'm also an investor in Mesh, which uh, I just like what they're doing. Um, sorry, it's Orchid. Orchid. Sorry, Orchid. Uh, they, oh, used to be, oh. they used to be called something else. But uh, Orchid, which is uh, doing some kind of a uh, tour slash incentivized VPN uh, for the world, just because I think that real uncensorable VPNs are something the world needs, especially in a lot of countries. Uh, it's something that uh, crypto is uniquely well-suited for because they're, they need to be decentralized by nature and even resistant to attacks by nation-states. Um, so I, I think that's a good thing for humanity. It just needs to exist. Yeah, well, I was reading your blog, and you basically dreamed that up in 2014. And I wondered if Steve Waterhouse, who's the founder <laughs> of Orchid, if he stole that from you or if you gave him the idea or what happened there. Well, in 2014, uh, 2013, uh, I got bitten by the Bitcoin bug. And the virus, you know, the virus took hold, and I couldn't think of anything other than this new model for how to create uh, and deploy protocols and how to kind of administer and control large networks. Um, so, on my blog, which is startupboy.com, I wrote a few articles where I had some ideas about how else this could be used. Uh, and I missed some use cases, and I picked out some good use cases. And they're sort of the obvious ones. Uh, and there were some that I put in there that still haven't come true, like a, we need a very fast clearing low transaction fee coin uh, that can be used for uh, settlements between uh, fast moving anonymous real world objects like cars negotiating rights away, for example. So some of these don't even exist yet, but I, I tried to get fanciful and it's the nature of futurism. You're going to get a few right uh, and then you take credit for everything that comes after it and you get a few completely wrong and you sweep those under the rug. But it's yeah. all out there in the open. I put it down in writing, so it keeps me intellectually honest. Yeah, and honestly, I mean, you know, I get pitched so many things, but when I got the Orchid pitch, I was like, oh, this this is interesting. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get to write about it, but it's the nature of covering this space where there's five million things going right. on all the time. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of curious because you have this sort of long history in startups and in Silicon Valley, and things are shifting right now. So I'm going to do a brief summary of your career. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong in any of this. But, you know, earlier you launched Opinions. And according to the San Jose Mercury News, your VCs and one of the co-founders convinced you and some of the other co-founders that the company was worthless. They engineered a merger and rebrand that went public, was later acquired by eBay for $600 million. And you and those co-founders who felt that you had been sort of duped, sued, and later settled. And then that experience led you to become an expert in term sheet negotiation, which then led you to become a matchmaker, basically, for startups and investors, which led to Angel AngelList. And obviously, you know, AngelList has been hugely successful. Um, but here we see, but maybe, well, you tell me, you know, if you agree with this, that the startup model is getting upended. And um, here it is now, you're in, you're, you've joined this, 
firm, this uh, crypto hedge fund that is not even investing in startups at all, but mostly in decentralized networks. So I'm sort of interested to hear how you think this model of like VC-backed startups that eventually go public has evolved over time, how you would describe the current phase of where we're at and that? Yeah, it's changed a lot for sure. With Angelist, we tried to create a network to bring a lot of the startup deals online, get them access to more investors, get more investors around the world access to startups. And that's that's worked relatively well. Today, I'd say about a quarter of the deals in the English-speaking world, um, mostly uh, California, New York, uh, and uh, Europe and Australia, are available on Angelist to a savvy investor. Uh, also, about half the companies, startup companies in the English-speaking world are recruiting on AngelList, and there's about a million candidates available on there. So we've definitely had a big impact. But the real financial sh- financing shift for startups that's happened is ICOs. And there we've created a new native token model, native to the internet, native to startups, that helps them get funded online. It's still in very early phases, so it's frothy, it's full of fraud, it's full of junk. Um, so it's not something that every startup can or should use. It's really designed for a small class of internet protocols uh, that I think are being developed today that could not have been developed 20 years ago. The the <clears throat> first generation of internet protocols, the HTTPs, TCPIPs of the world, uh, these are free open systems where nobody got paid for them. And they basically treat every resource in the protocol as too cheap to meter. But I think we're now entering an age where these inter- we have a next generation of internet protocols that are starting to meter scarce objects, digital scarcity. And that could be money. Money is a digital object, but it's scarce, obviously. You don't want to be able to just create it as you go. Uh, bandwidth is another one. File storage may be another one, um, may, although that's debatable. Uh, may turn out that uh, energy is another one. Uh, Etc. So whenever you have digital scarcity, blockchains are creating a new generation of internet protocols. They come bundled with these tokens, which is how you keep track of who owes who what in this scarce environment. Uh, the tokens themselves then create a financing mechanism uh, because they're bearer assets where owning the token is all you need. You don't need to register with the company or file with the SEC. Um, they can be more freely traded all around the world. They get treated like cash or money, like instruments. And so startups have sort of created their own new financing mechanism that's native to the internet and that can upend parts of VC. And where it's happening is at the edges. So if you look today, you know, five, uh, sorry, let's go back like 10, 15 years ago. If you wanted to raise VC financing, you went to Sand Hill Road uh, or you went to a few firms in New York or Boston, you did your classic Series A, Series B, Series C, Series D, and maybe there was uh, a little bit of angel investing right at the beginning. Uh, and then you rode this whole wave down until you got to go IPO 10 years later. Um, well, now the problem is the IPO markets have closed post-Enron. Post they're much tighter, much harder to go public. Um, so people are starved for liquidity. And on the other side, seed investors, angel investors, angel lists, syndicates, micro funds, all of this has come up. So you have a lot of seed money floating around, a lot more options there. You also have things like Y Combinator and all the incubators. You have... Uh, um, uh, now you have SAFs for tokens, but you also have safes for easy, uh, in, easy legal documents. So the early stage has gotten very rich, very vibrant, very innovative. The very late stage has just been completely closed, and the VC model in the middle hasn't changed. So what's happening now is the early stage is creeping up as the seed funds are raising more and more money and the seed rounds are getting larger. Uh, I was involved with a company that just closed a $4 million seed round on a safe note, which is an absurd concept. You know, three years ago, you couldn't have done that, let alone 10 years ago. 
and then on the other side, the ICOs are letting off opening the liquidity valve and taking the place of some of what, what the IPOs used to do. And VCs are getting squeezed in the middle. So now, if you're a venture capitalist, you either have to participate in a seed round for one of these companies or the A, or you miss it because the next round is the ICO. There's no Series B or Series C. Now, obviously, I'm only talking for a very small class of companies. These are, again, the uh, protocol token companies. Uh, but people are definitely trying to expand the definition of what a protocol token company is and who should be using tokens. So I think the VC model really is in danger of getting squeezed down to a very, very small space. Which is sort of exciting, honestly, in a certain way, although I'm sure... <laughs> it's exciting and scary. You know, the VCs have developed norms over the decades that prevent them from getting squeezed uh, or getting defrauded. Uh, although one could argue that there was a period of time uh, when that power was used against entrepreneurs because they got too good at it. Um, so now the pendulum is swinging in the other direction where an entrepreneur is far more likely to defraud a VC than the other way around. Uh, so it's uh, so I think that the, in the new model... ICO investors, seed investors, they need to learn some of the same norms and practices and defenses that, that sort of help balance the market out. Uh, you know, in, uh, in uh, biology terms, there is a predator-prey relationship, right, between these these two characteristics, although there's an arm, basically an evolutionary arms race, right? Every time the entrepreneurs get a new instrument, the VCs need to, like, evolve to make sure they don't get taken advantage of and vice versa. And historically, the entrepreneurs were always at a huge disadvantage because the VCs do thousands of deals and they stick around for a long time. The entrepreneur shows up, signs their first term sheet, and they don't know what they're doing. But now the internet is leveling that great playing field. Um, with the internet, people exchange information, incubators level the playing field, uh, YC level the playing field a lot, Angelus levels the playing field. Yeah, but one thing that I'm wondering is, um, in a way, it is disruptive, and yet at the same time, I feel like a lot of the people that are able to invest in these ICOs are people like VCs, people who have money, um, particularly, you know, something like Coinless that does restrict it to accredited investors. So is it really that disruptive? Oh, even with Coinless restriction, I would guess 90% plus of the capital is coming from non-VCs. Well, so, okay. And, yeah. But right, I mean, and, but let's just talk about disruption in terms of sure. like who, who has money and who's able to get in on these deals. Well, there's just, okay. So let's, let's talk about it in two, two forms. One is new players. I would argue 90% plus the money is coming from new players. Second is on the terms. The terms is coming on is very company friendly. So now the company can put hundreds of investors into a round, whereas before they would have had one lead VC and a few angels. And the third is actually when the company's blockchains go live and the tokens turn into a real use case where they being used for a real network, then retail investors can go in on these secondary exchanges like a Coinbase or a Gemini or a Kraken, uh, and they can buy stuff there too. So it is opening up. I'm not saying it's perfect. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, also, as we can see, like you know, when we've opened up the market from just VCs to ICOs, the valuations, the pricing has literally increased 10x. It's gone insane. So it's not clear you want to increase it that much that fast uh, while the norms aren't in place because you have companies that probably couldn't raise 5 million bucks through the venture circuit that are suddenly raising 50 million in ICOs, and that's not a good thing. Um, so, so the market needs to settle out. There needs to be a little bit of a crash. There needs to be a little bit of a comeuppance for, for some of these uh investments and then i think it'll become more rational it's the nature of technology that there's always an exuberance there's always a bubble there's always a crash and we just have to go through that cycle here too and can you imagine right now any mechanisms that would sort of both help keep the democratizing aspect as well as um sort of rein in some of these wild valuations we're seeing i think there just needs to be a market correction for a lot of the junk 
so you know a lot of the poor poorly thought through projects the need are going to fail the ship product or they're going to ship product and it's not going to amount to anything or people are going to figure out that oh the decentralized version of this is an even worse idea than the centralized version was so the centralized version didn't work why is the decentralized interesting so people will figure that out the investors will sell those tokens the market will crash there will be the inevitable cry for the government to step in and do something. And I think that's the critical time period. If the government doesn't step in and do something, I think it's actually a little better uh, because then the market will correct and will learn. Uh, if the government does step in and do something, you know, something, quote unquote, then you get another set of rules that you're applying 100 years from now that no longer apply. Meanwhile, most of the capital formation flees overseas. So I think it, it depends. There's, there's probably a, a happy medium, but the medium isn't in the middle. It's probably more in the favor of just letting the market play out and correct itself out. To some extent, when you when you look at early investors in Bitcoin and Ethereum, they've collectively made over $100 billion. Uh, and to them, that's almost, you know, returns on investment. So it's, it's uh, money that they came in and they sort of created out of thin air. So to them, yeah, spending... What about all the people that bought... I mean, name name any of the other hundreds of altcoins. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. easy to say it for those. Just I, I, I sincerely hope that anyone who's buying, uh, especially the altcoins, is doing it with an extremely small percentage of the network, so they won't lose sleep at night if it goes away. Anyone who's putting in a meaningful amount could be in for a really rude surprise. At the end of the day, in an open market, you can't protect everybody. The, the price of protecting is, is basically killing the market. Uh, and turning it back into a crony capitalist system or turning it into a highly restricted system. So you can't have it both ways. You can't have it open and democratized while at the same time having, you know, nannying and babysitting. So you yeah. got to pick, pick one or the other. I, I do feel like there must be some way to combine the two, you know, to, to do both. I, I, I don't know if we I think that that's the, that's the middle the SEC tries to walk. Uh, but, at the end, but this one is tougher because these are global markets. So even if you stop a U.S. citizen, you say, hey, you can't trade this token um, they can just go anonymously and do it somewhere overseas. These are purely digital assets. Uh, and I think one important thing to realize here is that we've always had strong financial regulations, but we have no speech regulations. Speech is free um, because we're a free society and we're not going to do away with free speech because it's the fundamental basis for a free society. Uh, but now money is just code and code is just speech. So money and speech are actually the same thing. So you're trying to keep Speech is free, and you're trying to restrict the flow of money, and the two of those just can't go together. And what do you mean by that when you say like money is is a form of speech? I don't really know what that means. Well, so in this case, what Bitcoin did was it turned code into money, right? So Bitcoin is pure code. There's no paper. There's no guns. There's no federal government. It's just pure code. So to stop Bitcoin, you got to stop code. And code is actually just speech. It's just a bunch of numbers and letters that I write down that a computer interprets. So you have to stop me from writing those numbers or letters down in a certain sequence and conveying them to other people to stop them from loading it on a computer somewhere in the world to stop that somebody else from then turning that into money. So you can't control the way money flows until unless you can stop the developers from writing the code and, and from talking to each other and from thinking. And uh, the regime that could do that would probably be one of the most evil regimes on the planet, um, not a society that I think any of us would want to live in. So essentially... By turning money into sorry, by turning speech into code or just writing into code uh, that computers can interpret, and then turning code into money that computers can exchange, you can't stop money from moving around anymore. Huh. Okay. This is what China's figuring out. This is why they had to shut down all the exchanges because uh, they had huge capital flight issues. 
because they're trying to control the egress of ingress and egress of money in China. Um, but you can't do that unless your firewall policy can filter out all the traffic that has to that looks like money. And it's really hard to recognize what it is because this is all encrypted to begin with. So there's all these zeros and ones flowing by on the wire, and you're trying to figure out which one is someone talking on WeChat and which one is money. Really hard problem. So yeah, that's one thing. I mean, obviously, I mean, there are so many theories about like why China did the crackdown that it did. Um, but obviously, capital flight is one. Um, other people are saying that they want to do their own cryptocurrency. Um, but I think one thing that I've looked into and that confuses me still is I just wonder why they haven't shut down the Bitcoin mining. Do you have a theory about that? Why they have or have not? Have not. Well, Bitcoin mining, uh, the miners are a very small set of people who are very well known to the government. So if they're concerned about capital flight, they can literally just watch those few actors. Um, whereas if there's general uh, trading going on in the exchanges uh, and it's very frothy, um, then you, you have to uh, basically monitor the exchanges. Of course, I think it's extremely heavy-handed they shut down the exchanges. I think it'll backfire because what's going to happen is sites like local bitcoins and crypto to crypto exchanges are going to capture the just the the excess and it's going to go offline where they won't be able to track it. Um, my sense is it was, and this is just a pure guess, I have no insider information, but my sense is it was done for capital flight reasons. And with the miners, you can just track the capital flight. So it's much easier to control. I think in the medium term, they do know they have to re-enable it. They have to re-enable it because this is very much the future of internet protocols and they can't miss out on the next generation of internet protocols. This is also the beginning of digital commodities. And when it came to physical commodities, they went out there and tried to accumulate as many of them as possible. So this should be no different. Uh, and this, so I think it's more likely that they would nationalize the miners than they shut down the miners. Huh. Interesting. Okay, we're getting a little bit um, further away from where I wanted to go, but I actually just wanted to go back to um, the this tension about like protecting investors, um, but also you know letting innovation go. I I you know know that you were involved in getting the Jobs Act passed. Um, those are the crowdfunding rules that enabled everyday people to invest. Yeah, in actually, it's, it's less well known. Jobs Act really enabled ICOs in one critical way. Before the Jobs Act, it was completely illegal to solicit the public uh, publicly for investment, even to accredited. You literally could only go through words of mouth and closed networks like AngelList or YC. Um, you could not, for example, uh, you know, announce in a press release that you're raising money, even from accredited. And the Jobs Act, Title II of the Jobs Act, allowed something called general solicitation. Um, and that seemed like it was going to be a big deal, but it wasn't. So in 2013, when that was announced, we had AngelList enable general solicitation. A lot of fanfare around it. Nobody used it. So we thought it was dead on arrival until the ICOs showed up and the ICOs rely on it. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. 
Okay. Okay. And then well, the Title Three of the Jobs Act enables crowdfunding, uh, which is what I think you were referring to, where small yeah. dollar investors can invest in, in uh, early stage companies. Well, so one thing that I found a little bit curious when I was just thinking about your history was, you know, you worked on this funding mechanism that would open up investment to the crowd, but then with the ICOs, one of the first things you did was CoinList, which is you know for wealthy investors, and I just wondered. Well, CoinList plus Republic uh, together can hit the whole market. Um, so you have, because of the way the regulations are written, unfortunately, the current law assumes that if you have a million dollar net worth, you're a genius. And if you have lower than a million dollars, you're a fool. So you fall into two completely different regulatory frameworks. Um, so we have to have two different entities. But between those two entities, you can do a full ICO to accredited and non-accredited. That's the law. I don't make it up. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily rational or reasonable. If it were up to me, it would be more of a sophistication test. Uh, and it would be a smooth gradient rather than a binary cutoff between uh, one million uh, above and below. Uh, but that's just the way the law is written. Well, I wondered actually if you, because you were involved in lobbying for that and kind of helping to, to formulate that regulation. So I wondered if you had any ideas about how they might do things better. Yeah, the the current regulatory regulatory infrastructure is a just a giant mess of individual regulations that have been piled on since the 1930s Act, so over the last 80-something years. And it's the infrastructure that Wall Street runs on, which is the most powerful lobby in the world and doesn't want anything to change. <laughs> so just getting the Jobs Act through was a miracle uh, because it really did seem to some elements on Wall Street like it was a threat. Uh, it was a bypass around their chokehold on capital formation and capital distribution. Um, so I wouldn't expect a lot of regulatory relief uh, I think what we can what we can hope for is enforcement relief, uh, maybe a little bit of enlightened non-regulation of crypto, just like there was non-regulation of the internet in the early days. So a little hands off, and then most importantly, global competition, because there are other countries in the world that don't own the reserve currency of the world, that don't have strong financial infrastructure that would like to be able to play in the next generation of financial infrastructure. So I think that will keep that will help people keep each other honest. Okay, so you're not thinking about getting in the lobbying game again? God, no. Okay. <laughs> it's exhausting. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I, I do a little bit behind the scenes here and there. Like, there was this whole stock options thing in the Senate recently. Um, so we weighed in on that. Um, I've definitely been talking to and help educating some people on Capitol Hill about crypto and, you know, what the kind of enlightened regulation there is. Uh, and uh, we've responded to information requests from the SEC. as, they, as they, They're actually very up to speed. So um, they're, they're quite knowledgeable about it, but they come in and they ask us for data. Um, so I participate in all of that, but I'm not going to go out there and lobby Congress again. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we're going to talk about what a blockchain future looks like and how Naval assesses tokens. But first, I'd like to take a quick break to tell you about our fabulous sponsor, OnRamp. If you're starting up a new project or need some design or branding help on an existing one, OnRamp has you covered. OnRamp is a full-service creative agency that has helped numerous companies, including many in the crypto space, maximize their brand awareness, gain traction, and accelerate growth. OnRamp has a passion for assisting brands and boosting business results and can help with everything from website and logo design to social and content strategy. Focus on your core technology and leave the rest to OnRamp. To learn more and see how they've helped passionate entrepreneurs achieve their dreams, go to thinkonramp.com. I'm speaking with Naval Ravikant, partner at Metastable and chairman of AngelList. So let's talk about how you evaluate tokens. Do you have any kind of step-by-step process when you get a pitch or hear about a token, like what do you look for first? What do you look for next? What factors make you realize it's not worth researching further? 
Yeah, first I sent it to my partner, Lucas, <laughs> uh, which is a little glib, but it's a way of telling you that even though I think I'm fairly sophisticated in the space, it's very, very difficult to evaluate anything. Um, Lucas and Josh, uh, actually, in many cases, when the code is available or when the technology is available, they'll audit the source code, they'll review the bios of the developers, they'll track down their histories and really try and do a level of technical due diligence that I think is critical in this space, even to an extent that it's not in venture. In venture, if someone comes to you and says, you know, I'm a professor at so-and-so, and I've written this code on VR uh, headgear, um, it's enough to use the application or use the prototype. Uh, whereas here, I think you actually have to go and review the source code. <laughs> it's just another level. And, um, and what are you looking for? Like, what would be red flags in the code? Well, the number of people in the world who are qualified to develop an internet protocol is probably numbers in the hundreds. It's not in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, so you have to basically make sure that they know what they're doing in terms of distributed systems engineering, encryption, protocol design, cryptography, all that stuff. So you're looking for technical competence. You're looking for good design. You're looking for having thought through all the various holes. You're looking for experience. And then uh, there are there are outright frauds in the space where the white papers look really good, but they're backdoors in the code. So Lucas used to make a living uh, beforehand by claiming bug bounties, by finding holes in coins or bugs in coins. Um, so he also looks at uh, those kinds of things. So, for example, you know, we looked at the parity wallet stuff a while back, and Lucas concluded that it was just too uh, dicey. There was, the code was just too complicated, and they were trying to do too much. So he didn't identify a specific hole, but he said this is the kind of thing that has holes, so we can't trust this. Um, so we have to be very conservative on the technology side. Um, at a market level, we look to see, is there a big uh, is there a big enough market for this? Is this trying to be a money-like token? Is it really bringing novel technology? Um, how is it priced? And you know, right now, I'm probably getting hit with like 10 ICO deals a day. Uh, and nine out of the 10 are actually pretty easy to dismiss because very often they're just companies that uh, don't need a token. We're not interested in blockchains or cryptography until suddenly the ICO boom started. Um, or, or their ideas that often didn't work as a centralized company, so why would they work as a decentralized? Um, so, And a lot of them don't need a token in the middle, or they don't need their particular token in the middle. They would be better off, uh, especially because uh, all the winning cases here are open source software. Somebody is just going to fork them, remove their proprietary token, and insert uh, a Bitcoin or an Ethereum, or maybe a version of the proprietary token that gives 0.1% to the developers instead of 10 or 100% to the developers. So I think a lot of it is just outright greed. Um, and so those ones are easier to dismiss. Then I think there's a category uh, that are interesting, but probably too early where people are trying to build, you know, next generation uh, marketplaces or, or uh, broad applications, almost platform-like applications. But I think we're still at the infrastructure layer. Um, so I tend to dismiss most of those. Uh, I don't. I think they might be fine investments for other people, but I have a strong viewpoint that we're still in the infrastructure phase here. So I tend to remove a bunch of those. So that's sort of like choosing not to invest in Webvan, but later investing in, Web, in Instacart, something like that. Something like that. Hopefully, that would be that would be good if that works out. Um, there's also a number of these that are uh, what I consider asset tokens, where they're not really a protocol, where you have some digital thing you're moving around underneath. It's actually rather mapping some asset in the real world like a piece of real estate or a car uh, or a share in a, in a real world company. Uh, I also think those are less interesting because uh, they're not, it's not fully digital. It's not fully protocol native. It requires external enforcement by law, uh, by legal authorities. Uh, and as such, it's basically a security by another name. 
Um, so uh, those ones also less interested in uh, and tend to dismiss. Uh, and then when you get into what I consider to be the protocol tokens, and especially the gold standard or the money-like protocol tokens, um, the bar there is really high because there's only going to be one to five winners in that entire space. So the technology Wait, has to be... Why do you think that? Money has a very powerful network effect to it. Uh, one way to look at it is, uh, you know, if we didn't have geographic national boundaries, we'd probably only have the U.S. dollar or the equivalent for the entire world. We wouldn't have thousands of currencies. Um, the currencies only exist because of national borders. Money is like language. Uh, it's something that's uh, intrinsic to the human species. We want it to be as open as possible. and The world tends towards one. Now, within money itself, there are different use cases. There's store of value, like gold. There's unit of account, like what we use dollars for today. And there's medium of exchange, where we actually currently use uh, digital packets that represent U.S. dollars or... or uh, uh, sign digital signatures represent U.S. dollars. And the next money could be all three of those things in one. It could be a different one for each of those three things. Uh, or it could be that we have a basket of things for each one. And it's not clear yet. Nobody really knows whether it's going to be one or three or 20 or 100. But it's more likely going to be in the one to five, one to 10 range. So now you're basically saying, okay, there's hundreds of still business plans to do these. There's only going to be one, maybe two winners. So you really, really have to have a very, very high technical bar um, for what you think is going to do well. And today, the default use case is the default case is probably going to be some combination of the you know top 20 cryptocurrencies. So to get in there and unseat one of those, um, you're going to have to come up with, with a pretty fundamental innovation. And is that why you've invested in Basecoin and Zcash? Like, it, it sounds like maybe you think that a stablecoin will definitely... Sta stablecoin, stable yeah, stablecoin is one of those coins that sort of needs to exist. Um, I don't necessarily recommend uh, Basecoin. I think there's going to be dozens of players in the space, uh, of which none might win. But if one does win, then a stablecoin is great because it allows you to actually do real-world transactions without the price moving on you. One of the problems today uh, as a user or as a merchant is Bitcoin and other coins are just too volatile. When something can go up or down 10% in a day, uh, you can't use that to run your business. Uh, you have to get in and out of that as quickly as possible, uh, which incurs transaction fees and has storage costs and all those kinds of things. A stable coin, in theory, could hold its peg like the U.S. dollar stays within the very tight range uh, over a long enough period of time that people can actually post prices in that coin and they can actually transact in that coin. Well, one interesting thing that I thought when I was reading the base coin white paper was that... Um, because I, you know, I understood this part about how they were sort of incentivizing. I forget the name of the, the group because um, there were like three people. There were the bond people, and then there right. was actual coin, and then there was the third where you're incentivized to, um, to sell yeah. users. Or, anyway, the bondholders. Yeah, that's yeah, I, I forgot. <laughs> yeah. I forgot the name of that group. But the point is just that I was kind of like, well, their upside is only going to be limited to a certain percentage. So I was like, why would anybody speculate on this when they could speculate on like Bitcoin and Ether? And, you know, and then I just wondered, like, is this going to be that popular? And anyway, I just because I feel like speculation is what's fueling everything right now. Mm -hmm. I, I just was like, if somebody's being really rational, they're not going to be like, oh, I'm going to get it all in on this because they're mm -hmm. going to realize that their profits are going to be pretty limited. So Right. But they but their downside is limited, too. And the profits may be relatively not guaranteed, but maybe a lot more predictable. Um, so it's like if you look in the uh, bond market versus the stock market, stocks on average make a lot more money than bonds, but bonds are quote unquote safer and you're guaranteed your coupon over some period of time with very low risk of complete default. Whereas equity, the chance of a total wipeout is actually pretty high. 
So equity ends up being more risk capital, bond ends up being more safe capital, and and most of the money in the world goes into bonds, credit markets, not into equity markets. So you could argue the same kind of thing here, but a lot of it depends on the exact parameters. And you're right that in the crypto markets, it's driven mostly by extreme thrill-seeking, money-making speculation. So it wouldn't be the same kind of investor that necessarily invests in both coins. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see how well that one does. So one other thing is that I've seen in other interviews, you've talked about like with startups about how timing is extremely important and a lot of that's due to luck. So um, I don't know if maybe you referenced this a little bit earlier when we spoke, but do you have any particular types of tokens now that you think have a bigger chance of being lucky? Um, You know, like, are there any that you feel are kind of in that sweet spot of really needing uh, or, or this space really needing them and then also the technology being pretty ready for them? Yeah, I think we're still in the infrastructure phase. Uh, even thing, even the two biggest coins, uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum, have not yet figured out how to scale properly. They have not yet figured out how to decentralize properly. Ethereum is still controlled by a very small number of developers, like very small. You can count them on one hand. And Bitcoin is controlled by a relatively small number of developers, you know, probably like three dozen, uh, and a small number of miners who are concentrated heavily in China. Um, and a small number of exchanges that get to set policy on what do you call the coin. So we are not actually in the decentralized future yet, and these uh, platforms can't actually handle applications and scale them yet. Uh, That said, we are making rapid progress. Um, So given that, I think that uh, investing in apps is just early. It's okay for entrepreneurs to start building them, and there are probably a few that may break out early. Um, Like, for example, you know, if you look at the first generation of web, Almost everything from the 1998, 1999 dot-com boom is gone. We don't use it today. But there are notable, notable exceptions like Amazon and Google, right, the big five. So two of the big five companies were born during that time period, and Apple was sort of reborn during that time period as an infrastructure provider to a lot of those companies. Um, so I, I think you have to basically realize that the entrepreneurs who are playing right now are playing an extremely high-risk game. Uh, they may form the big five, but most of them are going to end up like the dot-com companies, the pets.com and the web vans. Um, so for me, at least as an investor, I look much more at the infrastructure and deployment phase, sorry, the infrastructure phase rather than the app development and the deployment phase, which will, I think, come later. And then earlier when you were talking about how Bitcoin and Ethereum haven't really kind of figured out a good governance model for a decentralized network, do you have any particular idea in mind of how you think governance should work for these decentralized networks? Well, they're, they're not really fully decentralized yet, but they're already more decentralized than anything that has come before them. Uh, and the thing that really makes it possible is that even though Ethereum is only controlled by a small handful of developers, those developers can't just do whatever they want. Uh, because the uh, it's open source code, it can fork very easily. If they do something unpopular, the users can literally pick up the code in the network and leave. Um, so that creates a level of honesty that, that just doesn't exist. Imagine if you and I had the ability to press a button and teleport our entire lives from the United States to any other country that we wanted. And that was true of any citizen of any country in the world. Um, countries would still have control over their geographic boundaries and their borders and the laws within the borders, but they would just behave extremely differently. Uh, it's also the difference between when you're casually dating somebody versus when you're married to somebody. Right? When you're casually dating them, they have to be in their best behavior. Otherwise, either party can walk out. But when you're married, then people kind of tend to revert to sort of not their worst selves, but their normal selves uh, and uh, because they know they have lock-in. So at the end of the day, because cryptocurrencies can fork, because the users can leave, because the users can sell your currency and buy another one, it just forces you to behave at a level that other that's not true with other code and other infrastructure. 
infrastructure. For example, there was a woman recently who was banned by Uber and Lyft because she went on some screed against them online. Um, and I'm sure, I think what she did was probably reprehensible. But the idea of being banned by Uber and Lyft, that's pretty insane because it's not like you really have a third option. What are you going to do in San Francisco? Sit on the phone for 20 minutes and wait for a taxi? Um, so she, so those companies have a lot of control. In crypto land, nobody has that much control. They try to do anything that the community doesn't accept, the community's gone. Uh, and I think that right there, that right to exit, creates better governance than almost any other system that we've ever had. Now, on top of that, you can layer on a additional better governance like bitcoin has this concept of there's the users there's the miners and there's the developers right it's a, a soft analogy to that would be there's a judicial system there's the executive system there's a legislative system in the united states um, so you do get some division of power uh, but it can be better uh, bitcoin's had a really hard time agreeing on anything new moving forward which many people would argue is a source of strength because it's trying to be an immutable store of value and, and eventually I actually think it's better for Bitcoin to be extremely conservative. Uh, Bitcoin is where you put your money in and hope that nobody can touch it. Nobody. Uh, that includes the government, that includes Chinese miners, that includes U.S. developers. So if Bitcoin is going to make a mistake, I would rather that it err on the side of not changing quickly enough rather than changing too fast. Because as a user, now that may not be what's best for Bitcoin necessarily, but as a user, I have other options. I also have Ethereum, which changes a lot faster, moves fast and breaks things. But on the other hand, may because of that mentality, isn't really in, interested in protecting an investment. It's interested in creating an ecosystem of services on top. And so uh, that's probably where I'm more likely to want to run my business. Uh, and then something like Zcash and Monero are much more focused on privacy. And if I care about privacy, they're going to defend, protect, and encode it at a level that the other big two are not. So I think in general, it's good to have a uh, diversity of coins with different governance models, different philosophies, different communities. And as a user, I can just go in and out of whichever one I need when I need it. Within a given community, they get extremely acrimonious and there's a lot of fighting, mostly by the hodlers, because they just want to maximize value and survivability. And, and they have very different viewpoints on why that currency exists. But as a user, I want there to be a thousand different currencies with a thousand different governance models and a thousand different et cetera, et cetera. Um, so... Uh, I think Bitcoin kind of is doing what Bitcoin does. <laughs> In another video that you've done, you talked about how you thought back when the internet started that it would be a democratizing force, it would take out the middleman, um, but now we've got like Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, Google, and you called them our new overlords. Um, do you think we run again that risk of missing out on this democratizing opportunity that blockchain technology offers? Yeah, I was always, uh, I, I love the internet, I love computers, I grew up on the internet, and uh, to me the big promise of the internet was getting rid of uh, the chokehold that Microsoft and Intel had over the tech industry or that other companies have over our lives. Um, the internet is fundamentally a democratizing force. And what it did do was it got rid of a lot of chokeholds like, you know, the New York Times is not what it used to be. Um, Hollywood studios don't have the power that they used to have. Even the U.S. government kind of doesn't have the same power over uh, certain things that it used to have. Uh, the banks don't have the same power that they used to have. The VCs don't have the same power that they used to have. So it did help democratize certain things, but it created these very thin, broad new overlords that uh, Ben Thompson from Strategy calls the aggregators. Um, but, you know, you just look at the big five. You look at how concentrated power is in the hands of an Amazon, a Google, a Facebook, a Twitter, 
or in Microsoft in, uh, or even Uber, uh, these, these companies essentially run natural monopolies, beneficial monopolies that help the consumer. They're not jacking up prices on us. They're actually doing quite the opposite. What they're doing is they're lowering prices on us and they're squeezing suppliers on the back end. But we still end up going through one company and whatever its politics are, whatever its power structure is, that's what we're beholden to. Like if you look at Twitter, Twitter could be the greatest force for freedom in human history. You can have one person broadcast censorship-free to the entire world, but Twitter doesn't run as a censorship-free platform, nor is it available in certain countries. Uh, if it were built on a blockchain, Twitter would be available in every country. It would be very hard to repress, and you couldn't shut down any speech, and I think something like that needs to exist. So the good news is I think blockchains, with blockchains, the long arc of the Internet is bending back towards decentralization, and I think we're actually going to have next generation of companies will be created that will be far more decentralized and have much smaller choke points than the current set do. And so uh, you really don't worry that we will end up just with new different, you know, blockchain-based overlords? I don't because I think blockchains are inherently decentralized. It's in their core infrastructure. You can't change it without ripping it out. To give you an example, uh, Vinay Gupta recently went off on this giant screed against Gab. Uh, Gab is this Twitter-like competitor that has a lot of, uh, you know, the right-wingers that have been thrown off of Twitter on it. Uh, Gab is looking for a new home to build where it won't get censored. Um, so Gab wants to build on top of Ethereum and do an ICO. Uh, and Vinay, who was involved early on with the Ethereum Foundation and Ethereum Development, went off in this giant screed about how you're, Gab, you're not allowed here. We will stop you. We don't want you or your people building on top of Ethereum. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting to watch one of the, I don't know if he's a founder, but one of the early people in Ethereum sort of try so hard to stop something and basically have no effect. Uh, Vitalik, the lead developer, basically said, no, we're not going to stop anyone. In fact, you go to the homepage for Ethereum, it says build unstoppable applications. Even Vitalik couldn't even do it if he wanted to because yeah. Ethereum would basically just kick him out. The community jumped all over uh, Vinay and told him to get lost. They said, you don't speak for us. Uh, and I don't even think it's possible. Even if all the developers and all the, uh, and a large chunk of the community wanted to stop them, Gab would just fork it, like happened with Ethereum Classic, you know, build on top of Ethereum Classic. So these really are unstoppable sort of networks. Uh, and it means that you can't have censorship and you can't have central control beyond the level that's encoded into the system. And if someone doesn't like the level that's encoded in the system, they can always fork it or they can go to hundreds of competing cryptocurrencies. Well, so speaking of control, um, you also said in another video that blockchains make individuals sovereign and put them in power. Um, but I think the other thing that happens at that point is that then it gives people another thing to manage. And I just wonder, like, if I even think about managing my own private keys or my identity or whatever, it just it feels like another burden, another thing to worry about. Do you think people really do want to manage their own personal data? Uh, I think most people don't want to, but they want to have a choice of who manages it for them. So uh, in today's model, with the way the world works is if I need a bank, it has to be one of the Federal Reserve regulated member banks, and there's just very little innovation or competition between them. Uh, if I have my identity, Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax manage it, whether I like it or not, and we saw how well that worked out in the Experian hack. Um, so it, I just don't have any choices. Whereas in a blockchain-based model, I can choose. If I want to manage my own identity, I can. If I want to put it on Civic or Blockstack or a different blockchain, I can. Uh, if I want to have a third party that I trust, 
there can be a thousand different third parties competing for the right to help me manage it. And they can have different security models, different pricing, uh, different policies on how they issue identity data to their various people and take responsibility for it. So what it, at the end of the day, all of this boils down to not that this isn't necessarily better, but that it gives you freedom of choice across the board. So the even though that's to- a little bit more centralized in a certain way, at least people are choosing that, is that? Exactly. Like with Facebook, I don't really have a choice. I want to be in the same network as all my friends and family. I got to go on Facebook and only Facebook can operate that network. Only Facebook has access to that data. A Facebook that's built on the blockchain, there'd be hundreds of thousands of companies, any one of which I could say, okay, you are the, you are my manager of my social network profile and data. Uh, the others aren't. And well, you're misbehaving uh, or you're selling my data out for ads. I'm switching away from you. So now you have reputations, you have choice. I mean, look, what separates capitalism from communism and its outcome is not intentions. Uh, communism probably has better intentions. What what separates them is choice. In capitalism, I can choose my vendors. I can choose to leave. I am a consumer. And by having the choice, I'm in charge. Whereas in communism, because I have no choice, I become a vassal. Uh, so the same thing happens in blockchain land versus classic internet land or classic financial infrastructure land. Classic a model, I have no choice, that one or two or three monopolists or federally appointed oligopolists who get to run my entire life. Whereas in a blockchain world, the data is on the blockchain, it's ultimately controlled by me, and I can cryptographically lock and unlock it for different entities based on how well they are serving me. And if they're not serving me well, I can always do it myself, worst case. Or if I don't want to do that, I can lock them all out and choose the friendliest one of the lot. So in a way, it's like if you do use a centralized service with when it comes to any of these blockchain-based networks, then first of all, it's your choice. But then also there could be many more of them than there were previously. So. And my data is portable. And blockchains, one of the key differences between blockchain-based protocols and the first generation of internet protocols is in a blockchain-based protocol, it holds state. My data is held in the network. Uh, so I can take my data with me. Whereas good luck exporting your data out of Facebook in such a way that if there was even a competitor that has survived, that a competitor could use it. Okay, so I want to go back to the governance question. Do you have any particular model in mind of how you think decentralized networks should make decisions? The, the, the decision-making model for the decentralized blockchains comes straight out of the open source movement. So it's around commit access and consensus and drafts and requests and the ability to fork. Um, that's sort of the best model that we've found to date for these code-based systems. Um, the new constituencies that have been added are the users uh, and the investors, right? Uh, and of course, miners. So those constituencies didn't exist in the open source movement. So miners, the way that they vote on governance is basically built into each protocol. Um, the way the users vote and uh, the way that uh, the investors vote is investors vote by buying and selling. The way the users vote is by adopting, not adopting. All of these can be improved. So, for example, you could see that future wallets would allow users to actually vote on the future of their currency through the wallet. So very much like you have uh, elections, uh, you could have your wallet basically say, hey, this month, these three currencies that you hold are making decisions on these th- three things. Um, here's what people that you trust in the community or follow on Twitter are saying. How do you want to vote? Um, you could have a voting mechanism built directly to the wallet. Um, you could imagine something similar for the miners and the software that they run. For investors, 
especially the ones who are speculating and buying into ICOs, you know, against all odds, uh, they actually need to have much stronger governance. They need to be able to say, well, you know what? Okay, we're putting 50 million into this crypto, uh, into this ICO project, but we're not going to just give you all 50 million bucks immediately. It gets locked up into a contract where it gets released in milestones every 5 million bucks, every three months. And there's a vote based by on the wallets on the different holders as to whether we release it to you or not based on have you been hitting the milestones and have you been performing. That's the simplest level, but you can imagine many, many more layers of governance. So I think we will get more sophisticated about these things over time, but it's going to take years to evolve. Uh, and my fear is there'll be a boom-bust cycle and then a crackdown, which doesn't give it a chance to evolve, but that's the way it should work. Well, how much bigger do you think this bubble's going to go? It can, it can go a lot bigger. I mean, the amount of money in the space is still small. The dot-com bubble was $1.7 and that was restricted just to the United States, uh, and that was just accredited investors. So this one can, and that was 20 years ago. So you take all those factors into account, this one can go a lot bigger. Custody has been a big problem in this space. How do you hold on to uh, your private keys, as you were saying earlier? So I think that is starting to get solved. I think within a year to a year and a half, you're going to see a lot of very serious solutions in the custody space. Uh, and at that point, you're going to see a wall of money come in from endowments and sovereign wealth funds and larger players. But even now, uh, you know, at the beginning of this year, I only knew of two crypto hedge funds, Polychain and Metastable. Uh, and even Polychain, I think, is only about a year old. Uh, and there were a couple that were sort of just in Bitcoin, like Pantera and Grayscale and so on. Um, now there's probably a hundred. <laughs> yeah. So the number of crypto hedge funds has gone through the roof. And I think there are all these big boy hedge fund managers sitting in Connecticut or wherever their fancy estates are saying, wait a minute, you're making these returns, you're getting this money and you're an amateur, I'm going to enter this space too. So we're going to see a lot more of those people flooding in. So I think the amount of money that can flood in the market still is enormous. And so it sounds like you think that regulatory action will only really happen when there's some kind of correction? Well, I think the SEC is already taking regulatory action against the obvious frauds. Uh, but I think the way most money is lost in markets is not through fraud. It's actually just lost through poor investments. It's just these are legitimate people who are trying legitimate things that just weren't very good or they were at the wrong time or they didn't get very far. Um, so that's how the majority of the money gets lost. And I think that's going to happen. And there's nothing the SEC can do about that. That's just the market needs to develop a taste and a nose for what a good investment is. And that takes time. And so let's talk about uh, power and how this is disruptive to those in power. What kind of threat or disruption do you think that this poses to governments? I think the most interesting thing about cryptocurrencies is if you step back for a second, um, the history of the human race is a history of networks. Uh, and humans are the winning species uh, compared to other species because we have the ability to cooperate across genetic boundaries, right? You're probably, what, Chinese by origin? Korean. Korean, okay. I'm uh, Indian by origin. My wife is actually Korean by origin. We can communicate. We can cooperate. We can relate. We can intermarry. Um, these are the kinds of things that other species just don't do. Uh, they literally only cooperate within genetic boundaries, within the anti, within the beehive, within the very small tribe. And humans can do this because we stitch together networks by telling each other stories. And the story of networks is the history of the human race. The United States is a network. Um, Forbes is a network. Uh, AngelList is a network. The U.S. dollar is a network. The English language is a network. Uh, so we create these networks, and generally you have to have some way, especially networks that are allocating scarce resources, of adjudicating and running the network. 
And historically, the oldest form of government that did that was you had a king in power who was basically whoever the most brutal person was, the biggest tyrant, they got to be in charge. Um, or eventually the king got attacked by the mini kings, the aristocracy, and they then forced them to share power. So you also have networks that are run by elites like the, uh, the medical system or the uh, legal system or even the U.S. kind of the U.S. republic is run more by elites than it is by an, uh, a president or a dictator. Um, you also can run a network by putting a corporation in charge, and the corporation can punish cheaters like Uber riders who aren't paying or who keep calling cars and canceling them. Um, but then the corporation can end up as a monopolist, just like the king can end up as a tyrant or the elites can end up as an aristocracy. You can also have a one-person, one-vote, a democratic or a communist network, but then you end up with a tragedy of the commons or mob justice um, so the, humans have always been trying to figure out how to govern large groups of humans, punish cheaters, and reward the people who are contributing. Uh, and the best network that we've created in the last few hundred years to do this kind of thing are markets. So markets are open like uh, democracies or commons. They allow anybody to participate, but you have to vote with money. So there's at least some merit-based system, but it's a money merit-based system. Blockchains extend that concept of market into managing all kinds of networks that before would have needed a central corporation or a central individual in charge. And I think that's incredibly interesting. In a blockchain-based network, I can get rewarded for contributing whatever the network needs. So if it's a network that's allocating bandwidth to people, if I create and allocate bandwidth into the system as a miner, I get rewarded by coin from that network. And nobody's in charge. There's no central authority who then takes charge of the whole thing, takes a 50% tax and starts kicking out people that they don't like. So I think humans have literally created a new form of governance. It is a sixth form of governance in addition to the five that came before them. And that's the kind of thing that only happens once every few hundred to every few thousand years. That's fundamental. Um, so that's going to upend every power structure that exists uh, there are corporations. Uh, it's not going to upend the existing corporations, but there are new networks that will be deployed that would have needed a central corporation that will now instead use a blockchain. Uh, there are new uh, groups of people who are making rules amongst themselves and adjudicating themselves who might have needed an elite to do it who will now use a blockchain-based solution. Um, there are new open systems that would have suffered from the tragedy of the commons that won't because they will use a blockchain-based system. Will we get so far as to have a government run on a blockchain? I don't know. Maybe in my children's children's lifetime, but that's a long ways out. But along the way, I think we are going to see some of the fundamental functions of government. We'll see that they're more efficiently done using a blockchain. Um, for example, a blockchain-based voting system would be would be essentially as cheating-proof as you can create a system. You could audit exactly that everybody got to vote, everybody who voted was entitled to vote, was registered to vote, but you don't get to see what their actual vote is. And it's done in a cryptographically secure way, such that there's no diebold, no corporation at the center that owns the voting machines. There's no Republicans or Democrats sitting there and counting the votes and throwing out the third-party votes or uh, things like that. So that is an example of some of a piece of infrastructure of government that is probably better done through a blockchain than by the government itself. Now, of course, governments don't want to give up power. <laughs> so that's going to be a struggle in the process. But I think we are going to see blockchains remake parts of government. Uh, and eventually, maybe hundreds of years from now, you could actually see them replace a lot of government. Well, going back to your description about the election or your example, do you imagine that that would happen in a um, in an election that's run by the government where they're choosing to create a blockchain-based election? Or are you imagining a decentralized? My guess is what will happen, like always, government's always a final adopter of any technology solution. They're never the first adopter. They're the last adopter. Just take a look at the DMV and the post office if you have any doubt about that. Um, so uh, 
the way it's more likely to work is that small private organizations that do have internal elections but are worried about cheating, are worried about, you know, there are some very opposing groups on each side, you would see them adopt a blockchain-based solution first. And it's probably brand new private organizations that are just starting up that are saying, hey, there's this, and of course the infrastructure will need to exist, so we're still in the infrastructure development phase, but five years from now, if you're starting a group that needs to have an election, like let's say you're electing a college president, right, on campus, and there's like the left wing and the right wing on campus, and they're really opposed to each other, nobody trusts each other, some clever student student is going to say, well, I'm just going to use this off-the-shelf blockchain-based voting mechanism that this now defunct company <laughs> built you know, with their ICO money, uh, and it's open source. Anyone can audit it. It's running on the Ethereum blockchain, so it's completely cryptographically secure. Uh, any student can vote. You log in with your student ID using your private key, so it can't be faked. We can show which students voted, and each student can audit their vote and make sure their vote was counted using zero-knowledge proofs, but your vote doesn't actually get revealed. So your vote is completely private. And then we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that these were the exact vote outcomes. That seems like a much better solution. So I could see small private organizations adopting it. And then it grows and grows and grows and grows until one day all the voters look at each other and say, why are we using this antique system for the big one when for all the little ones we're using this better system? It's sort of like how when the iPhone first came out, uh, corporate America was still all using Blackberries and continued to use Blackberries for a while until finally the CEO who had an iPhone at home and a Blackberry in the work and the CFO who had an iPhone at home and a Blackberry work went to the IT person and said, what the heck are you doing? It's time to get with the modern world. I don't care what you think about the security. I don't care what you think about your apps and your provisioning and all the stuff that you use to defend your job. Just switch over to the iPhone already. I don't care how it happens. <laughs> that happened. Right, so that same kind of technology adoption cycle needs to happen in blockchains, but that takes decades. That's not an overnight thing. Um, so, what are some like upcoming trends that you think we're going to see in crypto in the short term future? I, I always find it's much easier to predict long term than short term because short term has to do with the vagrancies of humans, and long term you can focus much more on the math and the protocols and the logic of it. Um, if I had to guess, I think there's a wall of Wall Street money coming in, like a lot of Wall Street money coming in. Uh, I do think I, I, this is more a hope than a prediction, but I, I am hoping that some of the top 20 currencies that are not that high quality do get recognized as such, and, and uh, you know more of the money gets concentrated into the good currencies. Uh, I hope that a lot more goes into development, uh, especially for high-quality protocol engineers. You have brilliant uh, people sitting at Stanford, MIT, Johns Hopkins, you know, and even lesser-known universities and places around the world. Um, and these crypto economists and crypto technologists, these people are worth their weight in gold. Uh, and they should be financed such that they can do fundamental good research into governance and scaling. Uh, I hope that scaling gets much more addressed. That's a big one. Ethereum's trying to do its proof of stake and sharding to get scaling going. Uh, Bitcoin, needs, now that it's rejected 2x, needs to get its lightning layer deployed and actually functional so that the fees can come down and the wait times can come down. Um, I think uh, it would be great if governments uh, started basically putting moratoriums around crypto regulation, just like they did around internet regulation in the early days, um, to give it a chance to blossom. Uh, you know, I don't think New York's bit license helped anybody. Um, and it's not a surprise that that came out of the state where all, all of Wall Street is. Um, so I get that the lobbyists there, you know, have a certain agenda, but nevertheless, it's, it's sort of short side of New York to say, hey, you know, we took over Finance 1.0, but we're going to throw Finance 2.0 out the door and hope it doesn't happen somewhere else. <laughs> right? That, that's not likely to right. be the case. New York does not get dictate the state of financial regulation, financial innovation for the entire planet. Um, 
if anything, it's just ensuring it's going to end up like Detroit, uh, hollowed out as the industry moves on. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping that some of these things will come to pass. Um, I hope also we'll just get better at things like custody so the average user doesn't have to worry about their private keys. Uh, we'll get better about education so you know your average person isn't running around and buying an ICO, um, but rather they're you know trying to figure out what the high-quality ones are or they're using an index uh, or they're just realizing the inherently highly volatile nature of these assets so they're holding small amounts um, through uh, good custodians. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of good technology development. Uh, in the last two years, when the hardware wallets got really good, for example, uh, more than two years ago, you didn't even have that solution, right? It, it wasn't very good. It didn't work well. Um, so I think we'll continue to see some stuff like that. Um, I think everyone's still waiting for end-user use cases where cryptocurrencies are better than existing currencies. We still haven't seen a lot of those. It's been a little surprising to me. I would have guessed that something like the collapse of the Venezuelan Boulevard um, you know, would have led people to adopt cryptocurrencies there, but the infrastructure just hasn't been in place. Your average Android phone or iPhone is still not geared up to be a good crypto-to-crypto -crypto platform, um, but maybe in one or two years from now, it'll be good enough that people will actually start transacting in crypto in places where the local currency essentially no longer works. And do you have any like big thoughts that are floating around your head around crypto that you've just been thinking about recently that we didn't discuss? Uh, you know, one thing I've been coming around to is... Uh, it's taking a lot longer to solve even the basics, like how do you scale Bitcoin? Uh, how do you build a secure uh, multi-sig wallet on Ethereum, etc.? cetera? Uh, you know, and, and you're having really large changes like <clears throat> the Chinese government shutting down all crypto exchanges uh, or Bitcoin Cash coming up and competing with Bitcoin. It might be more centralized or less centralized depending on it. So crypto is, if anything, becoming more volatile, not less volatile. And so in that world, I think the right answer to where crypto heads from an end user perspective will be that we may end up stopping to talk about is Bitcoin going to win or is Ethereum going to win or is Monero going to win or is Zcash going to win. Uh, and we may end up focusing much more on having baskets of crypto. And uh, it didn't work with uh, currencies because it's very hard for me to go down to the local store and say, here's a basket of the top 50 currencies in the world, right? Because they don't know how to handle Zimbabwe dollars and they don't know how to handle Mexican pesos and all that stuff. And they're limited by governments. But it's the nature of crypto that these things are uh, completely electronic. The wallets are completely in software. So if, for example, we could somehow agree every year, these are the top 10 crypto assets right now, and they're relatively stable and relatively high quality, and they all have different governance mechanisms, different levels of decentralization, different threat models, and different adoption models, that you could then say, okay, I'm going to give you top 10 basket, I'm going to buy it from you, I'm going to sell it from you, I'm going to hold a top 10 basket. Um, and you could almost start using it as a currency. There's no fundamental law of software that says that it has to be one cryptocurrency at a time. So I think we may just get more comfortable with baskets. And I know this was tried in the real world with uh, European Union originally had the, before the euro, they had a, a special euro basket instrument that comprised all the euro currencies, but it was a temporary thing, but it did work. Or the, um, the IMF has SDR, special drawing rights, or XDRs, uh, they also call them, uh, which are sort of uh, a basket kind of uh, currency instrument. But I think we may actually see in the crypto world, in the software world, that we create real baskets that actually be re used for real cases. And they're safer than any of the underlying cryptocurrencies. So if there's a big hack on a single exchange, or if the governance model of one currency collapses, or its encryption gets broken, or there's a bug in the software, it turns out to be a scam, you know, you lose 10% of where you don't lose the whole thing. 
It's almost like using a mutual fund or something as your currency. That's right. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It could happen in crypto land. So it's just an idle thought. I don't know what the odds are, but it's fun to think about. Well, maybe you can find some entrepreneurs who are going to create that. Um, All right. I'm going to ask you a personal question. It's one of my last questions. So if you run me out the door, then um, (laughs) I've at least got my interview. What percentage of your net worth is in cryptocurrency? I got to run you out the door. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't okay. talk about private crypto holdings. Okay. I don't even hold them personally. Okay. Yeah, no, I figure I trust them. I, tr- that I trust them to Olaf and Lucas. It's not my... Okay. Okay. All right. Well, this has been a great discussion. How can people get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter as at Naval. That's okay. the best way. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining today's episode with Naval Ravikant. To learn more about Naval and to find previous episodes of the show with other innovators in the blockchain and crypto space check out my Forbes page, forbes.com slash sites slash Laura Shin. Also, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Laura Shin. New episodes of Unchained come out every other Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby and Fractal Recording. Thanks for listening.